Happiness, inherent or acquired. The thing that most of us aspire to, in one word, is to be happy people. So it's vital to understand what is the nature of happiness. Is it something inherent, we're born with, innate within our beings, within our psyches? Or is it something we acquire through education, through modeling, parenting, our parents, our social influences, peers, today media. And that isn't just an academic question, a theoretical question. It's very real because if you're accessing something that's inherent to you, then you're accessing something that's there already and you need to just discover it. If it's something that you need to acquire, then you're beginning from scratch. Now you have to acquire it. And now you may acquire it from places that are not healthy forms of happiness. Or for that matter, acquire things that are not healthy altogether. So it's a very different approach we take. Though acquiring and education and all influences can help, but it's very different when you're dealing with an inherent talent or an inherent skill or not. Same is true with any talent. Let's say music. People who are inherently have an innate musical talent which will emerge through education and through training and so on. It's a very different approach than someone that may not have quite that gift. But I'll throw out another question or two regarding happiness. Is happiness a verb or a noun? Is it about things we do that make us happy? Or is this a state of being? Is it an action or a state of being? Or both? But here again, and there's overlap, state of being meaning happiness is 24-7. It's who you are. You're a happy person. Actions would mean you're doing things that make you happy or things that are happy things. Very different. Can they complement each other? Of course. But it's very different than when it's a state of being that you're looking for transforming yourself or your whole being is permeated. Like saying someone who does good things or someone who's a good person. Very different. A good person is good 24-7, even when it's inconvenient. That doesn't mean they're always doing something that's good, but their personality is such. Whatever comes up, there's a goodness emanating, a goodness aura that emanates from them. A person who does good things only could be while you're doing the good thing, it's a good thing and you get full credit for that, but it doesn't mean you are a good person. When it's not convenient or when you're not in that mood or place, you may not be that a good person, that, that much of a good person. There's many, many areas in life that the, the things we aspire to that you can apply this question to. Is it you're doing it or are you it? I've talked about this a number of times in the, when we talk about consciousness. You could be conscious of something, and usually that means there's a duality. There's the object and there's the subject. There's you experiencing something. You acquire a new piece of information. You acquire a new piece of information or data or knowledge. The knowledge is not you. You're learning it. But there comes a point of training and conditioning to the point that it gets so integrated and internalized inside of you that you become the knowledge and the knowledge becomes you. That's where you see people who are in the zone. People are deeply experienced and they don't need to even think about it. They've so trained themselves that they automatically react. They see something, they right away know what to do because it's not second nature to them. It's become first nature. It's become who they are. 
Finding examples of this are vital because when you learn how to, how you, when you can learn from things you've already experienced that way. For example, if you're a musician or a writer or a business person, think of the expertise in an area where you see things that others would not see immediately, where you know how to react where others do not react. Whenever it's a new piece of knowledge or new, or new skill, it's never who you are. So there's, of course, a great example for this would be when we talk about water. So when I put my dry hand in, war, in wet water, what happens? Something dry becomes wet. My hand does not become wetness. My hand does not become water. It's been touched by water. So there you have two entities, one affecting the other. But then there are situations where you become the thing that you, you assume that which you consume. You become one with the experience. A fish in water, for instance, according, especially according to uh, some opinions among the sages, is like water. Does a fish get wet or a fish is part of water? Let's go further. Water itself, does water get wet? If you pour water into water, it doesn't get wet because it's wetness. It embodies, it personifies wetness. And the same is true in many areas of life. Now, you can make the argument that, it, that as long as it's uh, acquired, it can never become one with you fully. So if it's innate, if it's inherent, then you could say that through work, you can become one with the thing that you're, it's already part of you. For a human being to become a human being, may need work that you behave like a human being, but you are the human being before you even worked at it. Whereas if the whole thing is acquired, it's something that's not even your nature, something you need to learn, you can argue that you can never become one with your state of being. So there's some truth to that. However, however, we know that there are people who work hard at something, even though they don't have the natural gift or skill, and they sometimes achieve greater heights than those that have the natural gift who have not worked on it. Just to qualify. Obviously, our objective here in talking about happiness is to use both methods, the method of acquisition, acquiring, and the method of inherent, where the acquiring helps you access that which, makes, which is inherent in you. And of course, the case I'm going to be building here is that happiness is inherent. But it's not enough, because there are many things that are inherent that remain dormant and uh, asleep without ever being expressed. How many talents do we have that way? So we do need both. To use it in more psychological terms, of course, there's the two schools of thought, so behavioral psychology versus inner, internal psychology, some call it psychotherapy, that behavioral psychology focuses on behavioral changes. Say thank you, show gratitude, bring home flowers, do things that are behavioral, and the behavioral will ultimately change your internal attitude. Your actions will become your emotions, your feelings. And enough of it, with the repeated exercises and persistence and repetition, then will become part of who you are. Now, in the behavioral school of thought, some even argue that you may not be that way at all. But the behavior, enough times doing it, creates a habit, a good habit. And then that becomes your natural behavior. For example, brushing your teeth every morning, no one's born with an innate need to brush their teeth. You're taught then it makes sense. But most importantly, you do it on a repetitive level, you do it consistently, 
then it becomes second nature. It's not necessarily innate or inherent, but what has happened, behavior has become part of your regimen, part of your routine. There's, of course, negative habits, bad habits that can do the same. Then there's working within, which means how can I create that feeling? Not from outside in, but from inside out, which may mean working on your own inner psyche, regression or going back to the past, what different triggers that affect you that cause you to become angry or resentful or insecure or fearful, and working that through. The jury is still out whether that really is an effective method, at least in the fullest sense of the word, but there's arguments to be made that certain areas you must go there because behavioral alone may not get it done because as long as you have inner obstacles, inner blocks and fears that are deeply rooted, deeply embedded in your psyche, trauma, behavioral is not going to solve all of that. Now, obviously, combining both would be the best because then you're working from the outside in into the daily routines, thought, speech, and action that you're involved in, as well as working it from the inside out. It's like drilling for oil or, for, or digging a well. Even though the well is there, deep under the ground, but you have to access it, so you need to drill from the outside in, from the top down, until the point you hit it, and then it spurts forth. So, in Jewish thought, this question has been posed to me a number of times, is Jewish psychology... When I say Jewish, I don't mean psychology for Jews. I mean psychology that's derived from Jewish universal sources. Is it behavioral or is it the internal version? And you have different um, statements, different declarations and different uh, ideas that are, that are spouted. For example, there's a Mishnah. A Mishnah is one of the early Talmudic uh, texts that together with the Gemara, the Talmud creates the Talmud that we know, the Talmud. So there's a, is a statement in the Ethics of the Fathers. It says, not study is the primary thing, but action. Which means you can study and theoretically and have all kinds of ideas, but it's action, it's behavior that causes change. There's actually an argument in the Talmud that says, what's greater? Study, scholarship, academic knowledge, or action. And the conclusion is an interesting one, that scholarship is greater, study is greater, because it brings to action. So it has both. Action may not be based on or may not be grounded in study, but study brings to action. Wherever you turn, you see the concept of behavior being necessary, the whole concept of doing good deeds. Mitzvot. Many of them are action-based. Some are thought or some are spoken speech-based. Some are in your heart, emotions. But many are action-based, and it's necessary to do the action. It was actually even the great general, Ariel Sharon, who later became prime minister of Israel, was once by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It was right after the Six-Day War. He was one of the generals in Sinai that led a very successful campaign that turned the war in Israel's favor. And the, the Rebbe at the time came out with a campaign of putting on film that men, and boys, after 13 years old, should put on phylacteries, which is tefillin, and made a statement that tefillin helps protect. Now, of course, it's a spiritual action. It's an action, but it's not the same action as actually going to war. So Rabbi Sharon asked the Rebbe, what's the point of that? You know, What's the point of this putting on tefillin? Even if you want to learn about it, so good, you could read about it in the books. 
And the Rebbe's response to him was very powerful. He said, you're a, you're a general. What's the point of having all these exercises and training? Why don't you just have your soldiers read books, manuals, guides, and then ready to go to war? He says, no, but if they don't have the training in action, in battle, in training, they'll never know what to do. The book enough is not enough because action has some power. And that's what the Rebbe answered, the same thing with a mitzvah, with a mitzvah, with a good deed, with tefillin. So you can have all the good intentions and say, I'm a good person at heart. The action is paramount. This would emphasize, seem to emphasize, that behavioral is the key. Behave like a mensch. Behave like a good human being. Behave virtuously. Be charitable. You don't feel it? Fine. We spoke last week about faking it till you make it. So you keep doing it, and by the, so, certain, certain, after a while, the routine will become your nature. On the other hand, you do find plenty of places to focus on mindfulness, on intention, kavana, the word. Not just what you do, but the intention behind it. Because when you just do actions, it can become hollow, become mechanical. There's a word called doing it mechanically, robotically. Whereas if it comes from an emotion, you love the person, or you love what you're doing, or you love God, or whatever it is, there's emotion, there's a passion, which is also in the Torah, the focus on emotional involvement, intellectual investment, then you do it with much more vitality and much more passion and commitment than just behavioral. So, of course, the answer is both are true. You need both. You need the behavioral. Many times you need to even be an automatic pilot because sometimes you're not in that place where emotionally you're all in that mindset or heart set where you're emotionally all ready for it or intellectually ready. But on the other hand, behavioral alone will not create the same excitement and ignite the same passion and and energy as inner, inner work. But to take it a step further, the question really is, are we good people at heart? Or do we do good things? And this goes back to discussions I may have had in this program many times, that at the end of the day, we are created in the divine image. We're inherently good people. Whether we act on it or, another, uh, or don't is up to us. But we're inherently good people. So when you do behavioral good deeds, what you're doing is triggering and generating the inherent goodness that's inside each person. And that is the most eloquent version of it all. Because it's not just taming a wild beast as best as you can, but inherently remains a wild beast, but been trained, been tamed. It's actually accessing and revealing inherent forces at work that when they emerge are who you really are. So it's like discovering who you really are. And the behavioral and exercises help achieve that, like the drilling. You need to work from the outside in, chisel away until you reveal, in Michelangelo's words, that I see the angels trapped in the marble and I carved and carved and set them free. So they're embedded. However, you have to set them free, so you need to do behavioral work to set them free. And then you have both sides covered. So bringing it back now to happiness and joy. Happiness, as we discussed in the last program, is the inherent part of every human being because it's all about knowing why you're here and sense of belonging, feeling comfortable in your own skin. 
not having to second guess yourself or looking at others and say maybe what they are, their identity is my identity, being comfortable with your own identity from the inside out. That is what creates true happiness. Remember, we're not talking about instant gratification. We're not talking about momentary uh, pleasure. We're not talking about what makes somebody smile for this second. For this second. We're talking about a general sense of belonging, a sense of contentment, of inner peace and harmony. That comes, what does harmony come? When you feel you belong, where you feel that what you're doing is fulfilling why you should be here. In the most fullest sense of the word, it's understanding and living up to your mission. And when you wake up in the morning, you jump out of bed with a certain excitement and enthusiasm. It doesn't always have to be expressed itself in a dramatic form or fashion, but a sense of, I know what I have to do today. Purpose. You see this with people who may not even always be in happy moods. When you hear they're going on a trip, and you know ahead of time, a few days before, weeks before, months before, this and this morning, we're going on a trip. Look how you wake up in the morning. The mere fact that you know what you're doing that day, I'm not even getting to where the trip is. The mere fact that you have that focus, you have that, that builds that anticipation, that creates a certain sense of calm, peace. Whereas if you don't know what's coming tomorrow morning and life is all about reacting, playing defense to what's going to come your way, whatever curveball comes your way, even if you're a great survivor and you're great defense mechanisms, it's all defense and it has to wear a person down and cannot create a pure state of happiness. Happiness is that calm, that peace, that serenity, that you are focused on what you have to do, and it's not others that can control that. You'd be surprised how much that's a factor. The idea of feeling that type of sense of complete oneness with what you're doing. Think about what I said before about water. You're not just getting wet, you're becoming wetness. When you are in that place, you feel completely focused. And I'm talking about even if it's just a vacation. Imagine... It's connected to the purpose of your life. That you sense this is what you're doing today is going to fulfill the mission for which you were created. The mission for which you were sent to this earth. That creates true and lasting happiness. Now many people say, I never identified that with happiness. That's like a sense of purpose. Maybe calm even. Most people confuse happiness with pleasure. What do I mean by pleasure? Yeah, I eat ice cream or I indulge in some other pleasure. I'm happy. But how long does that happiness last? Is that a state of being? Or that's an action? That's an action that may lead, it may, may generate some form of pleasure and some form of satisfaction. But it's not a lasting one. And most importantly, it's not inherent to you. <clears throat> Whereas when you're doing something that's living up to you, who you are, and what you're good at, or what you were, or what you were sent for, what you, your mission, that, which is your calling then that, what that does is generates and ignites that inner sense of your innate and inherent sense of belonging and happiness. So it's an inherent state which unfortunately has been robbed from many of us. When I say robbed, not stolen that's gone, but concealed, and you don't even know you have it. I meet people, they tell me they're miserable. Their lives are miserable, they don't know where they're going, they're not married, they don't have any companions, friendship in their lives. Go tell a person like that, no, you're really a happy person. They'll laugh at you. They'll say, you, you, you don't know what's going on in my life. That, but the response is, no, you're happy. You don't even know. You don't know that you're happy. But I'm not happy. Because you're defining happiness by your actions, by your moods, by what you feel. But what about all those things you don't feel? What about all that's inside of you that's waiting to be released? 
What about those angels, those flowers, the music, your voice, your song? But then what happens is the cast 22. I'm so miserable, I can't even access that. Even if I believe you, I just don't have the energy. I don't have the patience. I don't have the, the perseverance and the wherewithal. And what happens is, the outer you takes control over your inner you. So that which is inherently healthy and happy about who you are is now undercover. Because what's controlling is your outer experiences and the attitudes and the face and masks and mechanisms that we've developed that are not inherent. So acquired, unhealthy, dysfunctional tools have now replaced the inherent goodness and happiness inside of you. Just think of that formula. Just think of that statement. That itself is quite sad. Now, of course, someone in that state said, how do I know that's true? I don't know if you'll know it's true until you do it. Just like you don't know whether you're, you know how to swim until you jump into water. So the key thing is not to allow yourself, don't take yourself so seriously, not to allow your own negative self-perception and sense of failure and hopelessness to define who you are. It happened to you, things happen to everybody. But that's not you. Discover who you are. And what is your calling? What are you doing every morning? The misery that people experience, the anxiety, the sense of sadness, loneliness, all the the counter, everything that is antithetical to happiness and joy is become the things that we do. That became part of our, it's like your armor has become your person. Your mask has become your face. You've won so many masks, that has now become your face. To the point you can't even distinguish. It's as if there's one personality who you really are and another personality that you've assumed and is working for you, or at least you think it's working for you, when it's truly not. So what do you do about that? Well, there are no magic pills. It all comes down to being open, having the bittle, the type of modesty, humility, and most importantly, awareness that there's something more than you. Knowing there's more than your perspective. Because it's your perspective that's killing you. It's not allowing in another way of looking at it. I'm convinced this is the way it is. It's like the ostrich with a head in the ground. And that's it. I don't see anything more. It's you seeing the ground level and you don't see the horizons. So you have to, number one, in a healthy way. I don't mean beat yourself up or have someone beat you up. You have to have the humility to, humility to realize that it could be that as a result of your life experiences, your my vision is myopic. It would be like someone who needs eyeglasses and says, no, I don't need them, I see 2020. But you don't see 2020. So first thing is that acknowledgement, which may have to come, unfortunately, sometimes, with hitting rock bottom, with seeing how things are not working. Because very often we're not, we're not receptive to hearing that. What is required? Having another opinion. Having a friend, having a mentor. Reading something, studying something that presents another perspective. And allowing yourself to listen that maybe there is another way. So what you have here is a battle between what you've become and who you are, who you truly are. What you've become and your attitudes and all your routines have now taken control and not allowing the real you to emerge. That's not a pleasant uh, thought. That should motivate many of us to do something about it, but it doesn't. You know why? 
because the status quo and the inertia of the status quo is very, very powerful. It exerts tremendous amount of pressure and energy, even though you don't think any energy is there. You're just sitting in your seat. You don't feel anything pulling you. That status quo. Try getting up from your seat, meaning from getting out of your comfort zone, you'll see how powerful it is. So its power is not in an obvious way that it's schlepping you, it's pulling you, tugging at you. It just keeps you paralyzed. That's also power. And you can only see it when you try to move from that place. The second thing, I mean, I said several things, but more than one category, seeing another perspective, is behavioral change. Yes, behavioral change. We're now in the Hebrew month of Adar. So as in this month, when we enter this month, we increase in joy. Which is an additional to the commandments and the obligation to be joyous. Obligation. See, what kind of obligation is that? First of all, we all want to be happy. I don't need to be obligated, commanded to be happy. Second of all, if I'm not happy, how is a commandment going to help? Can you regulate someone's emotions, someone's feelings? But the obligation is actually a gift. It's telling us that's the true you. Your obligation is to access the true you. If someone came to you and said, you're obligated to find your own voice, that doesn't sound like an obligation to me. That sounds like a gift. That's why the word mitzvah comes from the word connection. You're connecting to what? To the true you. To the true divine nature who you are and the divine mission you were given. That's why we're told. And it's not optional. You have to do it. Because that's who you are. It's about living up to your calling, living up to your potential, to your possibilities. What is not doing it? It's displacement, dissonance. It's moving away from the true you. And the interesting word is, ivdu et Hashem besimcha. Serve God with joy. Ivdu is an interesting word. The word ivdu means to serve. But its real translation is to work hard, to exert yourself. It comes from ibud oiris, which means to work through to massage, more than massage, to um, tan, difficult and hard leather. So it could be a very raw entity that's difficult to shape, but when you keep working it through, you keep refining it, you keep disciplining it, taming it, you soften it. You're softening the hardship in life. So the word work means to work hard. What are you working hard at? To access the wellspring within yourself. You need to drill. You need to dig. So you need the behavioral effort of doing things that are happy activities, doing things that you volunteer and help people. You do things that are living up to your soul mission. Do it enough and do it with exerted work. And slowly what happens is the inner joy emerges. So it's not just serving with joy. It's serving that allows the joy to emerge. You could also say it's serving with joy in the sense that through joy you serve. You make that you work hard because it's a joyous experience because you're accessing the inner joy that's inside of you. So at the end of the day, it's about looking at yourself in a new way, in a fresh way. And that's always a healthy thing to do. Because you can only grow that way. Whereas if you keep looking at yourself with the old eyes and with previous uh, preconceived notions and prejudices then you're going to have what you had. If you do what you did, and you think what you thought, and you speak what you spoke, what are you going to have? What you had. Nothing changes, nothing changes. So here we have an opportunity, a window of opportunity, 
a door of opportunity, to open up the channels to our birthright, to our natural inherent joy. Last week I spoke about how children, you see children are born with a natural joy, with a natural state of contentment. There are exceptions, there are extenuating circumstances, but overall it's a certain natural happiness. Certain bubbly nature, adventurous, free abandon, no fears. Imagine we can reignite that, reconnect to that. Some argue, psychologically, that's what we're all aspiring for, some of that childish exuberance. I don't mean childish in a childish way. I mean that exuberance, that, that taking on life, the exploration, that the journey is exciting. Many of us have become jaded. Things have not worked out. Disappointments. We've been hurt in so many ways, invalidated. The list goes on. So then you're no longer you're drained. You're weakened. It's hard to just say, you know, let me go back and have that enthusiasm. So yes, we have spurts. We have moments where we try to break out. We have different ways. Panace- we think panaceas or different approaches that perhaps will give me some respite. But they don't last because they're not your state of being. They're just moments. You're just grabbing moments of escape into something that perhaps can give you a little joy, a little satisfaction for a short while. Some will say, I'd be happy with that. That's enough for me. It's not enough because it's not lasting. And most importantly, you're not accessing and actualizing what you're really capable of. So we're telling you, here comes a month, all year round, but this month especially opens up this window, this door, that you can access the real you. And you do that by acts of joy, yes. You may not be in the mood, but pick yourself up and make other people happy. There's a Talmudic statement that says that these two uh, jugglers or these two entertainers made other people happy as soon as they heard one of the angel Elijah heard what they do. He says they have a share in the world to come. What's the connection? Because when you make other people happy, that opens up your natural happiness, which gives you that share, that gives you that gift, that blessing, that reward. Try it out. When you have to make other people happy, you have to be somewhat happy. Not necessarily internally, but at least on behavioral level. And then you see, as they become happier people, you made them happy, you see you've achieved something. Isn't that a source of contentment? So you say, one second, I don't want that trick. I want to figure out how to just be happy. That's one of the methods. We live in a world where behavioral has impact. Find someone, a needy child, special child, why I mention children? Because it's easier with children. There's less resistance. You're not competing. You're not embarrassed. You help them out, and suddenly you realize there's something that's coming out of you. Firstly, that you're helping them. That right there is already a gift. And secondly, that you feel content. You feel at the end of the day, I accomplished something. By no means is it limited to that, but that's a good place to begin. Nobody can have an excuse not to do that. You keep at it. And it begins to grow inside of you. Now you'll say, is that going to solve all my problems? I go back home alone. I'm miserable. I'm, I'm overweight. I'm wallowing in my own misery. But you have at least begun the process. The next steps is what I said earlier, is to start getting another perspective on yourself. And stop focusing on your own wallowing and your own misery. And get out there. to start. I'm talking now besides what you volunteered to do. To study to listen to an objective perspective, a mentor, a friend, to realize that there's a bigger picture than you think it is. And the focus on self can end up being actually the und- your undoing. I don't mind to put it so harshly, but that's what it is, because 
you're focusing on yourself and your view of things and your experiences. What you want to focus is on something beyond you. What do you need it for? Not what you need. What do you need it for? Why are you here? And then act on that. These ingredients help create, create, or I should say help alberge the natural joy and happiness that is the nature of every soul. A soul, a spiritual entity on a journey to fulfill its purpose of transforming your corner of the world and making the material world into a spiritual home, a divine home. And that's why you came to this earth. Now you'll say, well, many people on earth, many people living on this earth are busy with all kinds of things, making money, power, influence, this conquest, that conquest. And they seem to be happy. Well, they may be distracting themselves. They may be they're happy at their service level. They keep busy. If you keep busy, yes, all day, you're not going to necessarily notice. But it's not real happiness because they can never say, I am fulfilling why I'm here. That may not be why you're here. You may be doing something. Maybe even be productive. It may even be good. It may even help the welfare of human race, of the human race. But you cannot say it's the calling of your soul, your life. And taking it a step further, many people don't think about that soul because we've been so busy with our bodies, which means with living in this material world and surviving, we're not even aware of that voice or we're aware of it, but in a minimal way. Brings us back to the theme that your soul needs nourishment and happiness is part of that nourishment. I've talked a number of times about the voice of the soul. How can we recognize your soul speaking to you? One of them is, you know what? Anxiety. Anxiety is only in the domain of the living. The dead are not anxious. Why? Because a living person senses things. And when you sense you're lacking something, you become anxious. So anxiety is actually like your body telling you when it has pain, do something about it. It's a warning signal. It's a red flag. Anxiety is the voice of your soul telling you something is not aligned. You are not aligned with your calling and purpose. So when we have anxiety, we say, oh, I have anxiety, I can't be happy. That's like saying the anxiety is causing you not, you're not happy because you're disconnected. That's why you're anxious. You're anxious because you're not happy. Not get rid of the anxiety and then I'll be happy. We'll take a painkiller. We'll take a Prozac. So how do you contend with that? You realize exactly that, that your focus on your anxiety is exactly the opposite of what should be going on. You should be going back to figuring out things that make you happy. Do something soulful. Feed your soul and automatically you'll be less anxious and you'll be happier. If I'd be happy, people say, I would serve with happiness. But you'd serve with happiness if you were happy. That's what people say, wait to have Serve with happiness and then you'll become happy. That's the point. You're acting on what you really are like. You may not be aware of it completely. You may be completely not aware of it. But by doing that, you suddenly emerges. It emerges. It's like being trusting, knowing that there's a well down there, deep down there. And when you dig, the well will come forth. If you're not confident, that's why we study. That's why we learn. And we come to realize we don't know it all. So we can't be the arbiters and the decision makers. So in practical terms, in practical terms, yes, joy, happiness is inherent, not acquired. We acquire different methods to help access that inherent joy. It's a state of being, not simply an uh, act. It's a noun, not a verb. Just like love is a noun, not a verb. It's a state of being. That doesn't mean you can't begin with actions. 
But what you really want is to become that state of being a happy person. You're walking down the street, nothing particular is happening, but there's a certain inner contentment, inner peace. You're not eating yourself up alive. And happiness is not, is not only visible to the senses. Sometimes it is. In most cases, it's not. It's coming from within. And then there's the acts, the actions we do that are both happy actions that make people happy, make ourselves happy. And how to get there? We combine all of the elements above. So that's a beautiful way of looking at the human being. Every a human being is a naturally happy state of being. Innate, inherent. But then all kinds of things happen in life that break us, that soil us, that hurt us, that wrinkle us, that scar, wound. Things that invalidate us. Like a flower lacking water, that lack of nourishment could cause us to wither, cause us to feel anxious, to cause us to feel unhappy and sad. So what's the solution? Is to go back. Is not to consider, okay, now I'm a sad person, how do I find happiness? No, you're a happy person that has found sadness. What you want to do is go back to your natural state, which makes it a lot easier. The problem is you and I, our habits, our routines have now convinced us, have psyched us up to think we're somebody we're not. You're an anxious person. You're a sad person. You're not. So we come into this season, a joyous month, leading to the joyous holiday of Purim, an exuberant month, an exuberant holiday, that leads us to bring out, to, immer- to access the inner joy that is the domain of each human being. An inner happiness. And sometimes imagining it can also help. Dream about it, and much easier to do it. What do you dream about? Dream what it feels like being a happy person. Watch others who seem to be content. See what they do. And emulate it. Dreaming is a great gift that God gave us. A great gift. You can imagine things. You can dream about things. Now you'll say, well, my dreams and imagination haven't led me anywhere. I just remain in illusions. Oh, but when you dream and imagine, it makes it possible. You say, you know what, that may be possible. And then when you discover that you are that way, then your dream and illusion, I'm sorry, your dream and imagination is not an illusion. It's dreaming, imagining about yourself in a deeper state. Dreaming, imagining yourself as you were a child, in a purer place, in a a place of fuller integrity, less duplicity and duality, a place of actual natural joy and happiness. Look at the results. Take two people doing exactly the same thing, and one is doing it with a happy disposition, and the other not. You tell me the results. The one, the happier disposition, will be more successful, more efficient, more productive, get it done quicker. Because it creates a light spirit. The other person may struggle, even though they may be more talented. They struggle, they're sluggish, they're slow, because they're demoralized, they're weakened by the, their attitude, their feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. So joy is also good for your health, for your heart, for your whole being. It opens you up. It opens things up. Someone smiles to you, tell me how you feel. Someone frowns at you, compare the two. It opens us up, it opens up those around us. And finally does something which this year is the 100th anniversary of the passing of the Rebbe Rashab, the 5th Chabad Rebbe. And he explains, Simcha, he says, is Poretz Geder. Poretz Geder means it breaks down all barriers. If you have a barrier, a fence, 
it just breaks through. Because it has that lifted, it lifts your spirit, that free spirit that it lifts, that allows you to feel you can achieve things that usually you would not be confident you could achieve. So may that be the power of this month, to bring joy into our lives, and that our joy should pierce barriers, transcend all the obstacles, impediments, the fears, inhibitions, insecurities, all those voices and forces that try to convince us that we can't do it. And discover the new possibilities of what you're really capable of, what you're really capable of. To discover not who you think you are, but what you really can become. And live by that. Many of us define ourselves by who we are or who, how we see ourselves. Now, discover what you can become, what you're really capable of, because it's all part of who you really are. And this is our mission at the Meaningful Life Center, to help provide resources, life skills, programs, classes like this one, to achieve just that. Meaningfullife.com. We could find this program. Every Wednesday we have a weekly program. We have a Sunday night program. We have a series of events every week. And plenty, plenty of resources that you can find in our inventory at MeaningfulLife.com. Please enjoy. Take advantage of these resources. Share your feedback. Share with others. A collective type of ripple effect. These words mean anything to you. Please share them. And we'd love to hear every comment and suggestion and feedback you may have to give us. We're here for you in every possible way. We're a spiritual wellness center. Meaningfullife.com Thank you very much. And everyone have a very joyous and happy week, a joyous and happy year, a joyous and happy life. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.